Hello, and welcome to the Hope Reformed Baptist Church of Long Island's podcast. In this episode, we continue our series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. The sermon was preached by Pastor Richard Jensen on February 7, 2021, during the morning worship service. The sermon's title is Hardened Hearts, Part 2, and discusses Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes. You can also visit our site, hopereformedli.net, and find us on Facebook and Sermon Audio for more information. That's Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Hear now the inspired word of God. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, and falling away from the living God. But encouraging one another day by day, as long as it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we prepare to look into your word, we would simply ask that you'd be pleased to bless the preaching. That, Father, that as your word goes forth, just as you have promised, that it would not return void, but it would accomplish every purpose for which you send it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There's an old expression, you may have heard it, experience is the best teacher. Now, there is certainly a lot of truth in that statement, but for having made a mistake, if one pays attention, uh, you can avoid making that same mistake again. But this is summed up in another old saying, don't make the same mistake once. There's better advice other than even making the same mistake, not making the same mistake mistake twice, and that is learn from the mistakes of others. That's one of the principles behind the apprenticeship. A young person works under the guidance of an experienced worker and, and learns from him. 
And if the student pays attention, he can avoid making many of the mistakes that perhaps his teacher made when he was learning his craft. You know, it's a good employee who learns from his mistakes. Just speak to any boss and he'll tell you that. But it's a better employee who learns from the mistakes of others and then doesn't make them the first time. Now that's true not just for employees, but for all of life. But unfortunately, most of us don't learn that way, or many don't learn that way. There's another old saying, a lot of old sayings this morning. Another old, another old saying, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. If you, had, if you study history at all, you will see that this is so true. Our culture has made many of the same mistakes that our ancestors made before us, and we didn't learn from them. You know, a successful army is one that is led by a, by a man, a general, or a group of men who have studied history and, and don't fall into the same trap that previous armies have fallen into. It's much better to avoid a hole in the ground than trying to get out of it once you're in it, isn't it? In our text for this morning, the writer to the Hebrews warns his fellow Christians, his contemporaries, to learn from the mistakes of the past. Now remember, the, the whole book of Hebrews was written to contemporary Hebrew Christians of that first century uh, as an exhortation not to, not to abandon Christ and return to the practices of the Old Covenant, which so many of them were prone to do. In fact, that was one of the greatest tendencies of the early Hebrew Christian church. And the writer is exhorting them not to make that mistake. And he began his discourse by showing that Christ is superior to the angels, and for that reason he should be listened to more than, than the angels even, who were held in high regard by the early Christian Jews. Then he showed that Christ is superior to Moses. That's the portion of scripture that we're in right now. And if Moses is one to be listened to, then how much more so Christ? Moses was a faithful servant, but Christ is the faithful son of God. And the writer begins this portion of his admonition by using an Old Testament scripture. Uh, we've seen that verses 7 to 11 of Hebrews 3 are actually a quotation from Psalm 95, which we also read this morning. Now remember, last week we saw that Psalm 95 is written actually in two parts. First five verses are an invitation to worship Jehovah with reasons. And the reasons that he gives are, one, that he's the only true God, and he is the maker of all things and the, the sustainer of all things. So his people are exhorted to worship him. In fact, if you understand who God is, then the only logical thing to do is to give him your worship. The second half consists of the invitation to worship, once again, uh, with warnings. This is what we went through, remember? The warnings were given by the psalmist as a, are a remembrance of the disobedient Israelites that came out of Egypt. And what happened to them? There are severe 
and stern warnings against hardening your heart against God. The psalmist brings our minds back to the disobedience and, and the lack of faith of those Israelites. Remember, he says, how your fathers tempted God by not trusting him at Meribah and Massa. Uh, they grumbled against God for not giving them water, and Moses struck the rock, and water came forth. Then they refused to enter the promised land when God told them to. And they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. And God pronounced a death sentence on that entire unbelieving generation. He swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Uh, they would not enter the promised land of Canaan. And we know that God caused them to wander for those 40 years until every one of that generation was dead. Just as the psalmist many years earlier exhorted the Hebrews to learn from their past mistakes, the mistakes of their fathers, the writer to Hebrews uses the same example and the same admonition to warn the Hebrews of his day. And the next four verses are an application for his fellow Jews of that first century, but they contain very strong words of exhortation as well. Look at verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Uh, the caution is to beware that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Uh, the warning is to take heed to what Christ has said. And I want to just pause here for a minute. We always want to take verses in context, we, and, and in context of not just even the chapter, but the whole book. And remember how the author of this book starts his epistle. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And that's the admonition, is we have to remember the words of Christ. So beware that you don't have an unbelieving heart in rejecting what the Son of God has said. The unbelieving heart is, it's an evil heart. It falls away from the living God. Now that's an important phrase. What that means, to fall away from the living God, it means to apostatize, to depart from the Christian faith. In the case of the first century Hebrews, to leave Christ and return to Judaism, that was the main admonition. Since Christ is God, that means falling away from the living God. Notice the use of that adjective, living. That has special meaning when used in conjunction with God. When, it's, when the Bible uses the words the living God, it's usually referring to the power of God, the almighty God, the one who is living in comparison to the gods, so-called gods of the pagans who are dead and lifeless. You realize that if you're a follower of one of these false gods, there's no danger in falling away from them. They're dead. They never did exist. 
You can leave the gods of the Canaanites, the, the Baals, the Ashtoreth. You can leave Buddha. You can leave Krishna. And you have nothing to fear. But there is grave danger in falling away from the living God. He is the omnipotent God who holds all things in his hands. And he swore in his wrath that the disobedient, unbelieving generation of that old covenant would not enter his rest. So how much more then are we who are the beneficiaries of all the work of Christ and the new covenant to take heart to this admonition? Listen to the words of John Brown as he explains the impact of this warning upon the Jews of the first century. He says, Wherefore, seeing Jesus Christ, who, presided, who presides over the family of God of which you profess to be members, is so far superior to Moses, who presided over the family of God in a former age, calling to mind what an inspired writer has said of the fearful judgments which overtook those of the family under Moses, who were unbelieving and disobedient. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The evils to which unbelief and impenitence exposed the Israelites were dreadful, but the evils to which they will expose you will be just as much more dreadful as the new economy exceeds the old indignity, as Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. And then he continues, There is no prayer that a Christian needs more frequently to present than, Lord, increase my faith. Deliver me from an evil heart of unbelief. All apostasy from God, whether partial or total, originates in unbelief. And then the writer to the Hebrews continues in verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is, as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. First notice how one gets an evil, unbelieving heart. It is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember, now we are talking about those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. That's who this epistle is written to. Those who fall away do so because of the deceitfulness of sin. And by sin, the writer means anything that is inconsistent with the law of Christ. It doesn't have to be what we may call a major sin. Falling away from the living God is not just to fall into gross immorality or descending into a life of crime. It can begin small. In fact, it usually begins small. It usually begins with just some non-Christian thinking. You go back to the original temptation of Adam and Eve. Did Satan come and say, let's go, we're going to rebel against God? No. Did God really say, did he really mean that? Today we see the same type of subtlety, the deceitfulness of sin. We hear Christians say, well, what's wrong with, and you fill in the blank. Something that is clearly 
against Scripture, but what's wrong with that? What's really wrong with that? God surely didn't mean that when he said thus and so. By the way, God wants me to be happy. And if this makes me happy, then God's okay with me. You see, when your thinking becomes inconsistent with the Scripture, when you add things to Scripture that aren't there, or when you take things away that are there, when you begin to relegate the teaching of the Bible and you call it outdated or outmoded, when you excuse sin as not being your fault or it's not even sin at all, then you are in danger of being deceived by sin. You're in danger of having your heart hardened towards sin. You're in danger of falling away from the living God. And it can begin small, just like the proverbial camel who just wanted to warm his nose. And soon occupied the whole tent. Sin is deceitful. Sin is enticing. Sin is fun. And everyone's doing it. But it is deceitful, and through its deceit, the heart is hardened towards God. But then the writer gives the remedy for this in verse 13. But encouraging one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Encourage one another, exhort one another. Now, to do this, we must first learn the lessons ourselves. We must keep in mind that each of us has a tendency toward evil. We all have a tendency towards an unbelieving heart. We're all prone to fall for the deception of sin. We sang, the last hymn we sang today, Come Thou Found, prone to wander. If sin wasn't fun, nobody would be doing it. So we must keep the truth of God's word before us every day. The remedy to sin and deception is the truth and purity of God's word. But we are told to encourage one another day after day. Within the body of Christ, there is to be mutual edification, mutual encouragement on a daily basis. That means you must be involved in the lives of your brothers and sisters in some way. It's why we place such an importance on fellowship. It, it, it hurts us when we have to cancel a fellowship. It's just killing us today. Because we need one another. We're the body of Christ. If you're part of the body of Christ and you absent yourself, you realize you're hurting somebody because you were supposed to be there for a reason. And you may not even know in this life what words of encouragement you gave that really helped somebody. And, of course, the clear example of, from the scripture is that you need to be part of a local church under the authority of an eldership and in mutual submission to one another within the body of Christ. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian in the kingdom of God. A person who refuses to submit to a local body is a prime target for the deception of sin. Because sooner or later they begin to set up their own criteria for what the Bible says and what the Bible means. 
If you don't stand up to their scrutiny, then you're called a compromiser, and you may even be called a heretic. They do not accept the mutual encouragement and the exhortation of the body. Why? Because they know better than you. We can all think of people who just will not come into a church, yet they profess faith in Christ. You know, it's interesting. The word that is translated encourage in Hebrews right here is frequently translated in Scripture as comfort. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4.18 when he says to comfort one another with these words. It's the same word. It's the word parakaleo. Does that sound familiar? It's the same word that Christ uses to describe the Holy Spirit as another comforter in John 14. I emphasize this because far too often Christians err on the extremes, either to not exhorting or accepting exhortation or becoming overbearing and judgmental in their exhortation. The idea expressed in Hebrews here is coming alongside a brother, not beating your brother over the head. There are those who sometimes like to set themselves up as the conscience of the church. And they're very quick to point out the one sin and even question the salvation of one who could do such a thing as that. And usually that's an area that they're not struggling with. It's interesting. But we are told to encourage or comfort one another frequently and without delay lest the deceitfulness of sin take over and lead us astray from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. There's an urgency in this matter. It must not be put off until another time, but it must be done in love and the comforting as well as in truth. If the sin is serious enough, of course, then church discipline must take place. But it's not the prerogative of an individual to pass judgment on brothers in the Lord, but to seek to bring them to repentance. John Brown says once again, he says, To the right discharge in this duty, much Christian wisdom and affection are necessary. But when rightly performed, I am persuaded it very seldom fails of producing a happy effect. And James says in James 5, verse 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The writer that Hebrews highlights the importance of this exhortation and warning by his words in the very next verse, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. The apostasy, which is a result of an evil and unbelieving heart, is a demonstration that the person, if it continues, may not be a true Christian. To be a partaker in Christ simply means to be a, a part of Christ, to be a Christian. You know, it's interesting, this is the only time in Scripture that this particular phrase is used. And, but it means it's the same thing as being in Christ or members of his body. 
The proof that one is a partaker in Christ is that they held firm till the end. We know that many people start the race running fast, and they peter out and they fall by the wayside. But the one who endures to the end is saved. The confidence or the assurance that anyone has that they are true believers is that they have maintained the true faith. A person who is carried away by every wind of doctrine has no assurance that they are partakers in Christ at all. How many people do we know? One day they're this, the next day they're that, back and forth. But the person who is rooted and grounded in the faith has the assurance that he is, in fact, a partaker in Christ. So the admonition to the Hebrews is, beware lest you be, de lest you be deceived by sin and carried away. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That is how you can be assured that you are a partaker of Christ. And then he continues with the same admonition again in, in verse 15. Look at verse 15. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Notice we come right back to the theme which we began a week ago. Remember how your fathers provoked the Lord in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember how God was so angry with them that he swore in his wrath they would not enter the promised land. Remember all the terrible things that happened to them because of their evil and unbelieving hearts. Remember all these things and listen carefully. There's, notice that there's an urgency to this. While it is still today, listen to his voice. If you are really one of his children, today hear his voice and do not harden your hearts. Recognize that you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Repent and grab hold of the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, this is the most important thing you have to think about in the whole world. And don't think that any one of us isn't above this warning. That's the point he makes in the next few verses as he summarized what he has already said. The writer asks a series of questions designed to bring the listener back to the warning and the admonition of Psalm 95. Look at verse 16. For who provoked him when they, heard, when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So who were the people that provoked God? Do you realize that many people today sitting in supposed Christian churches think, well, you can't provoke God. No, God is a God of love. He just loves me. He'll never get angry at me. Notice who provoked God. Who is this psalm written about? All those whom he had led out of Egypt. These were God's chosen people the ones who saw the ten plagues come against Egypt, 
the ones who walked through the sea on dry land, the ones who drank water from the rock, the ones who received manna from heaven, the ones who saw his awesome presence cover the mountain, these same people who were the object of divine favor provoked God to wrath. So don't think that you're above doing the same thing. Look at verse 17. And with whom he was angry for 40 years, was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? These same people sinned and became the object of God's wrath. They died in the wilderness instead of seeing the promised land. Remember, Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. Sin provokes God to anger. He does not wink at sin, and especially the sin that deceives a person's heart and leads him away from the living God. These same Jews professed to be God's chosen people, and yet they died in the wilderness. So don't think for one minute that you're any less capable than they were, the writer says. That's his warning here. And to whom did he, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? God's anger burned against these people. He swore that they would not enter the promised land. When God swears, it is irrevocable. The the sin of these people was so great that God would not change his mind. They would never see the promised land because they had evil, unbelieving hearts. They were disobedient, and they paid greatly for their sin. And then the writer gives one final word at this point. And we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What's at the heart of this whole thing? A heart of unbelief. And God held true to his word. He not only swore in his wrath, but he kept his word and not one of those people entered the land. Unbelief is at the heart of almost every other sin. I I won't say it a hundred, but I think so. Because of their unbelief, the Israelites wouldn't enter the land of Canaan, when God told them to. They believed the report of the ten spies who claimed to see giants in the land. They didn't believe God. So in the end, they couldn't enter the land. It was the consequence of their unbelief that kept them out. If the unbelief of the Israelites kept them out of Canaan, the writer to Hebrews tells us it is reasonable to presume that our unbelief in Christ will keep us out of heaven. So, experience is a good teacher, sure. And we should learn from our mistakes, but how much better is it to learn from the mistakes that others have made? Especially when those lessons are from the inspired word of God. And the writer to the Hebrews exhorts his brothers to learn from their fathers. He pleads with them not to have evil, unbelieving hearts that will lead you away from God by the deceitfulness of sin but to encourage one another frequently and without delay to prevent this deception. And I would also plead with you today, just as the writer did 2,000 years ago. I've said it in the past, and I'll say it again. I believe this book of Hebrews has special application to those who are in churches that preach the true gospel. There are people who come in and sit and listen to the true gospel and still have unbelieving hearts. Just as the Hebrews took their privileges as God's chosen for granted and were led away into apostasy, 
So the danger for us is to get too comfortable, too lax, and even too confident. Apostasy begins with one small compromise, a warning that goes unheeded, then a separation from the body, and then an evil and unbelieving heart is deceived by sin, and the heart is hardened. The writer says, which I echo, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you once again, and Father, we recognize that these are some strong words. But you have seen fit to include them into your, your holy scriptures. And Father, let each one of us who has heard these words take stock, not get too comfortable, examine ourselves to make sure that we don't have a dis have not been led astray into unbelief by the deceitfulness of sin. Father, I would pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you that the warning would be taken by their hearts. That, Father, that you would open their hearts, give them hearts of flesh that they might believe these words and see the danger that they are in. And that today would be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name.